0: Welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss apt practices and articulate resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. Today I'm in the office of Matthew Barrett. Dr. Barrett is Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Barrett, thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I Uh, should note that here is your office. That's
1: right. Okay. Uh, Yes, uh, I'm glad to have you in my office, but uh, (laughs) thank you for having me on this podcast.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much. Dr. Barrett is also the founder and executive editor of Credo Magazine, an evangelical publication making theology accessible to those in the Church. Dr. Barrett has written widely in areas like systematic and historical theology, most recently editing Reformation theology from Crossway, just in time for the 500th anniversary Mm -hmm. of the posting of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. Probably just about the time that we air this episode, I would imagine. Did you plan this? Oh, yes, of course. Okay. Uh, 500 the, years. Down to
1: the very detail, yes. I believe that.
0: That's, that was wise, <laughs> both for marketing and otherwise. Now, Dr. Barrett also recently edited the Five sola series from Zondervan, writing God's Word Alone, the volume on Sola Scriptura. We're going to talk about both of those and Credo Magazine. But my first question to you is short, though not simple. How do you have any time for this interview? <laughs>
1: well i'm a I'm a big advocate of consistency mm. and I tend to just plug away every day little by little. my wife Elizabeth will tell you this um, I don't uh, necessarily uh, write a book or or write an article in one big chunk uh, i I just pick away at it until it's done and Usually, by the end of a month or a couple months or a year, I have something to show for it. Uh, Hopefully, it's worth reading, Um, and uh, so consistency is really key.
0: That's important to hear. All of you doctoral uh, students entering your dissertation right now be thinking about that. I'm sure I could definitely learn a thing or two. So one of the things we talked about talking about uh, was an ETS paper you wrote about the doctrine that we hold informing our exegesis and and normally on our avenue we we really emphasize the reverse of that we really emphasize having an exegetical theology of others like others have written about so uh what's the deal man tell us why why does doctrine have to inform our exegesis
1: well there are many that will tell you it shouldn't uh, or or that uh it cannot inform our exegesis, and there's a long history of this. And interestingly enough, it's not limited to certain segments of evangelicalism, but actually it has a longer history uh, and heritage in Protestant liberalism as well. Uh, there's a number of fears that motivate that concern. Um, to on the evangelical side, uh, many today, and you could pick up a number of hermeneutical textbooks. Uh, Many today will say, well, if uh, doctrine informs our exegesis, then we're allowing uh, an extra-biblical system to uh, bias us uh, against uh, the right reading of the text. It's a very interesting objection because actually uh, long before certain evangelicals made this objection, uh, Protestant liberals had a go at it. And you think of someone like Adolph von Harnack, a very famous Protestant uh, liberal um, who actually made a very similar argument, but came to very different conclusions. And so he would look at uh, the New Testament and and even uh, uh, even accuse some of the biblical authors of um, imposing a certain theology, or uh, probably uh, more likely, uh, some of the early fathers. And so, if if you were to ask certain liberals like Harnack, well, where where did we get, uh, where did we get our understanding of the deity of Christ, or uh, what is articulated at a council like Nicaea or definitely Chalcedon, they would say, oh, this is the re- this is the result of reading doctrine into into the text. So it's 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 a An objection that, interestingly enough, cuts both ways in both traditions and has a long history. I actually uh, want to make and have made the argument that we shouldn't be so afraid of doctrine informing our exegesis. In fact, in many ways, it's inherent in Scripture itself. Uh, So you think, for example, of uh, the Apostle Paul uh, in passages like 1 Corinthians 11, 23, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 15. Uh, it seems to be assumed in passages like this that Paul actually has a certain set of doctrinal beliefs that he's bringing to his understanding of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, Paul's, of course, in a very different category, inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture. But even early on, and, and most New Testament scholars will acknowledge this, early on, When you look at the the epistles or really many of the New New Testament books or the New Testament canon as a whole, there's a rule of faith that is assumed. At times, it comes out more explicitly in some biblical passages than others, but it's it's definitely assumed. Mm -hmm. Uh, In in other words, there is uh, – and then once you get into the first and second centuries of the church – it become this rule of faith becomes standard, so that it's ingrained in the worship services of of the early Christian congregations. Uh, well, what's going on here? Uh, essentially, um, there is a an agreed upon what we might call orthodox belief system. Every that that consists of the basics uh, that that, and, and you see this say in, in something like the Apostles' Creed. Uh, dis- describing and affirming uh, what Christ did and um, what he accomplished and, and so on. Uh, this is the rule of faith at work, and oftentimes it, when we read the biblical authors, whether there's a Paul or a Peter or a James, it's being assumed in the way that they're even interpreting the Old Testament or even uh, instructing the church. Now, if we fast forward a little bit, uh, when when we talk about Uh, hermeneutics, I think a case can be made, a good case can be made for uh, a certain circle, hermeneutical circle, or maybe a spiral, as some have called it, in which theology is incorporated into that process Mm -hmm. so that uh, we are coming to the text, and whether we realize it or not, we are coming to the text with certain theological beliefs in place. It's just a matter of whether they are consistent with the whole canon, the whole witness of scripture. Uh, And so there has to be almost a checks and and balances going on in which um, we're coming to to the text with a a theology. uh, And where it is unbiblical, we then have to revisit it, revise it, tweak it, uh, that sort of thing. I think, I often tell my students this, if we come to the text with the mentality that we are completely neutral, well, we're really just returning to the Enlightenment period. In my opinion, I think the evangelical evangelical church has been scared, and and there's justifiable reasons for this, but they've been scared by postmodernism, which has abandoned uh, any meaning in the text. Uh, And as a result of that, we want to hold off on any theological meaning that we might bring to the text. Um, And as a result, uh, sometimes... Whether we realize or not, we're, we're going back to the Enlightenment as if we are this autonomous uh, interpreter and can come to the text completely neutral, which of course is not true. So we come to the to the text with certain theological presuppositions. It's just a matter of where are we getting those and whether they are con- they are being born out of the canon of Scripture as a whole or not.
0: Sure. So uh, practically speaking, how, how do I come to exegete interpret and even apply a text of Scripture, knowing that I'm coming with a theological presupposition, but also being open and willing to be reformed by the text in my theology? You, you mentioned the hermeneutical circle spiral. Yeah. How practically can our listeners practice this?
1: Well, that question alone uh, could could take up an entire book. Sure, yeah. <laughs> But... And will someday, I'm sure. (laughs) If I could just say maybe two things, just uh, not to be comprehensive, but just to get um, people thinking in this direction more. The first thing I would mention is we have to remember what type of book we are interpreting. Uh, In other words, uh, it's it's an inspired book, or as Paul says, it's God-breathed. Well, what uh, that assumes... And implies is that yes, the human author um, is is writing these out. You think of Luke and his gospel, for example, sometimes going to to uh, at great length to to investigate what's happened in order to to then produce what he's written. But there's primarily the divine author, and oftentimes behind the scenes, uh, which is not uncharacteristic for the Holy Spirit, uh, and the divine author. Uh, is the one who is uh, breathing out uh, exactly what uh, the human author is is writing. So uh, its inspiration is verbal and and plenary in that sense. Now that being the case, if if that is true, uh, that scripture is uh, God breathed. Well, that that should change our perspective to the very text we are interpreting. In other words, uh, as we read the text, we we have to keep in mind there is a a story that's unfolding here, uh, one in which God is the divine author. And as he has revealed himself to us, um, he has done so progressively. Uh, We, in the 21st century, have the benefit of being this side of the cross. And so we receive the entire canon at once. But as we come to the canon of Scripture, uh, we are taking into consideration everything God has said. And, and you could probably t- start to notice that even in what I'm saying, the systematic theology is starting to, to, to creep in. You can't hide it any longer. <laughs> you can't hide it. Uh, so the tools of biblical theology are essential as we are trying to understand the story unfolding from Genesis to Revelation. However, if we are going to understand what all of what God has said uh, and, and revealed about himself and, and his people— um, well, that that's theology being born. Um, the second thing I, w- I would mention is, is not only taking into consideration who has written this uh, text, but also, and I've hinted at this already, also the way that Old and New Testament uh, fit together. And, uh, you know, many, the fathers and the reformers would oftentimes refer to the analogy of Scripture, so Scripture interpreting Scripture. We see the apostles doing this, of course. Even in the Old Testament, we see the, the prophets uh, yeah. utilizing this hermeneutic. But there's also not just the analogy of Scripture, uh, but the analogy of faith. Uh, the analogy of faith takes us a step uh, a step further, in which we're not only allowing text to interpret text, a book to interpret book, um one epoch to to interpret a previous epoch um as as hebrews does for example but we are also uh with the analogy of faith we are also allowing our entire um well scriptures uh rule of faith it's 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 teaching um concerning god christ man salvation to inform any one particular text and and i think that is where um, we could say that the hinges, uh, because if we if we stop short of that step, uh, which the majority of interpreters in history followed, uh, from the fathers to to the reformers, if we stop sh- short of that text, it raises the the question of whether we are actually treating scripture as revelation, and whether we are uh, being faithful. To interpret it theologically, uh, it, it seems that the biblical authors um, are definitely in, interpreting um, authors before them theologically. It's just a matter of whether we are too.
0: Sure, yeah. In our uh, endeavor at exegetical tools and biblical studies, mythical theology, and just the biblical studies world in general, hyperspecificity is celebrated. I mean, that's what a dissertation is, right? It's I've, I've thought of six things in combination that no one else has perhaps thought of or at mm-hmm. least written extensively about. And what I think I hear you saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that if we overspecify without, so do that, but also bring in the broader context of the entire canon, everything we can mine from systematic theology, historical theology, uh, letting you know, the material and the formal principle interact Mm -hmm. a little Mm -hmm. bit. Speaking of which, uh, you edited this five solas series and you wrote about the formal principle. You wrote God's word alone Uh, in that process. uh, And we'll talk as well about Reformation theology that you've also edited. But in that process, did you learn anything new or were you just distilling for us uh, years and years of study?
1: Boy, that's a tough question.
0: I'm so glad I could come up with one. That's good. I know you systematicians like tough questions, right?
1: Well, the design of the series is in many ways to distill. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, th- that word is key. What, Which is an advantage. Yes. I mean, it's wh- an
0: accessible uh, summary.
1: That's right. And so hopefully much of, of – in fact, if you take any one of the books uh, – one of the five solas and the authors who, who wrote them, hopefully, much of what they are saying is is uh, something that's being echoed or has been echoed by, by those who've gone before us. Uh, so, whether it's the, the doctrine of Scripture, whether it's Solus Christus, Christ alone, whether it's faith alone, sola fide. Uh, The design of the series was really three parts, historical, biblical, and theological. Uh, So in the historical sections of each, uh, we are retrieving uh, the past in order to not only understand each sola accurately, but then also to transition uh, to the biblical and theological sections of those books and show its relevance for today. So I guess the answer is yes and no to to, to your question, because on the one hand, uh, we wanted to make these solos accessible to students, uh, seminary students, college students, even uh, pastors and, and lay people. And in the books, there's a, a certain conversational tone. But it's it doesn't take you long as you flip through the pages uh, for the reader to be pushed into uh, the, the deep waters, mm-hmm. we might call them, the deep waters of these solas. I think we're all familiar with the the, the type of popular mantra or, or, or mottos uh, that you usually hear uh, around the solas. But actually, and as you read the books, you, you start to discover this, there's a lot of nuancing. There's a lot of uh, detail that that each Sola brings to the table that sometimes is lost in the popular conversations. Uh, so in in my book, for example, it's not just that I'm affirming, say, the clarity of Scripture or the sufficiency of Scripture uh, or the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture, but I take considerable time to, to specify exactly what those mean. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you take some if you take inspiration one of the attributes of scripture well inspiration is a word that is uh, greatly misunderstood today we we use it in in ways that uh, shouldn't be applied uh, sure. to the doctrine of scripture uh, we we talk of uh, being inspired by you know maybe it's the beatles or or maybe it was the beatles today it's it's uh, uh, the, the new coolest uh, band but uh, that's not what we mean when we talk about the inspiration of scripture so part of my uh, job' description as a theologian was to to get into those that nitty gritty and to specify then well what does Paul mean when he says uh, it's God breathe and what does he not mean? Um, same thing with the sufficiency of Scripture as well, uh, which is a very contested attribute of Scripture. Uh, towards the end of the book, I think it's one of the last chapters. I go into a lot of detail to talk about what sufficiency doesn't mean and what it does mean in order to counter some of the objections of, say, the Roman Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. but then also more contemporary objections, say, from postmodernism or from the recent debates over science. You know, how how much should science inform our exegesis of the text? Questions like that. Uh, So, yeah, to answer your question, uh, in in one sense we're distilling, but in another sense... uh, there is a, a journey for each of these books in which uh, each author is exploring territory that's not just historical but also very relevant uh, for the contemporary challenges we face. Right. So it was a learning process uh, for oh, yeah. me as well.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And so I, I think it's funny. So you say historical, biblical, theological sections here, and we're discussing your your ETS paper where you believe the theological ought to inform the biblical. And so it's clear that you you, you hold these two things in a, a correct tension. So let me ask this. Uh, one of our listeners says, you know what, this would be worthwhile. They buy Reformation Theology, uh, and then they buy the entire Solus series. Which do they read first, and why?
1: Well, buying both of them, of course, is the most important thing. Absolutely. <laughs> it's That's exactly what we're here to do, yeah. Um, but, no, <laughs> well, I think... If you bought both of them, you would have enough reading for a a good long uh, summer. So definitely do that. But uh, having done so, which one do you read first? Well, that's a very difficult decision. They're very different uh, projects, which might surprise people because the topics are so similar. The Five Solas series with Zondervan is is very uh, theological in nature. So what I mean by that is... Yes, uh, there are sections of each book in which they're, the author is exploring the the heritage out of which the, that particular soul comes out of. Um, going back to the reformer, some, some books going back further to to Augustine and, and others. But that being said, um, a lot of uh, this, the words in the books uh, are dedicated to uh, exegesis and then um, theological uh, attention is given to each sola. And, and perhaps there is, is where the majority of time is spent. So they're very theologically rich books uh, in, in which hopefully you're, you're walking away from that series, uh, not just understanding the history of the solas, but also, and perhaps more importantly, uh, why these solas are so biblical and, and theologically why they make a difference for the church today. The, the, the other book, though, Reformation Theology with Crossway, it's a book I edited, uh, in which I recruited over twenty different authors and experts in their field, in in order for them to write on particular doctrinal topics and explain what the reformers taught uh, and wrote about about each of those topics. It's a very different book because it explores the whole the whole scope of Christian theology, uh, which it was something I desperately wanted to do because uh, you, you would expect. Uh, in a book called Reformation Theology, you, you would expect a, a chapter on sola scriptura or sola fide. You're not going to expect a chapter on eschatology sure. or a, perhaps even a chapter on uh, church and state relations or the person of Christ, Christology, um, and, and so on. Uh, a chapter on the attributes of God. So uh, one of the exciting things about Reformation Theology is it'll, it it gave me an excuse really to explore… Um, some new territory and to, to allow readers to walk away from that book, having not just a grasp of the solas, but actually a much deeper understanding of what the reformers taught about the entire Christian, Christian faith.
0: Which comes back to our broader topic anyway, because we're, you get to examine what doctrines they already held and how they formulated those from the text, you know, how these um, sole uh, especially uh, considering that we we don't have them articulated as these five until relatively recently. Correct me if I'm wrong here.
1: Yes, and this is what, – what you're saying right now brings up a really important point. When we think of the Reformers, we tend to think of them as theologians, and that's absolutely true. However, they were – most fundamentally and primarily, they were – uh, biblical scholars, so Luther is starting off his his training and his education, and then eventually his professorship, lecturing on Romans, lecturing on the Psalms. Uh, Calvin is preaching through the Bible, so a series like uh, Timothy George's Reformation Commentary on Scripture is indispensable because it reminds us that, yes, Calvin wrote the Institutes, but uh, Calvin uh, also in conjunction with the Institutes preached through the Bible and wrote numerous commentaries, as did many other Reformers. Um, Heinrich Bullen- Bullinger would be one of them, uh, Peter Martyr Vermigli, another. Uh, the, these, these individuals, these Reformers were uh, commenting on the text, but then also expositing the text, in the church on a weekly basis, so they were biblical scholars as well.
0: Well, right. So you're and you're saying not just theologians, not just biblical scholars, but churchmen. Yes,
1: they uh, were churchmen.
0: Which brings up a really important uh, discussion I wanted to have with you. You're you're following along in that same vein of of being uh, for the church. If I can slip that in there, we'll talk about Midwestern uh, later, but through Credo Magazine. Tell us a little bit about how Credo started and what you're doing with it.
1: Well, Credo Credo Magazine was started because I started to see a gap uh, between the academy and the church. I think this is one of the dangers in any Ph.D. program. If you're a Ph.D. student or even if you're in seminary at all, uh, depending on the school that you are attending – uh, oftentimes, uh, there, there are two extremes. There's there's the one extreme of uh, attending a seminary in which you are uh, er- everything's just pragmatics and uh, diving into biblical exegesis, diving into theology or church history is seen as is really relevant. The, the other extreme is uh, pure academics, and that can be dangerous as well. In which uh, you are studying theology uh, simply for the sake of of, of studying uh, or being an academic, and it, it begins to be removed from the local church. Uh, I'm a I'm a big believer that uh, seminaries exist for the church, and credo came out of that desire or out of that uh, conviction because uh, as as I looked um, at evangelicalism, it seemed very obvious that uh, you you had those. Plugging away in, in the academic setting, and then you have those in the church, and the gulf between the two was large. And so, it be it, I started to wonder whether there could be a publication uh, for that that bridged that chasm, uh, that helped pastors, for example, who who maybe have been at a seminary for five, ten, fifteen years. Who need to be reminded of the, the core beliefs of the Christian faith, or need to know how to address some contemporary issues uh, from a biblical perspective? So it bridges that gulf, uh, but it also is meant to help lay people think theologically. Uh, so I've been a pastor in in the local church as well as 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 a professor, and uh, one of one of the I hope it, it, one of the, the uh, Really, the um, motivating, uh, or or we maybe we could call it an agenda even, uh, of every pastor should be to not only uh, exposit the text, hopefully you're doing that, but also to help uh, his people think, uh, uh, theologically, think about how the entire Christian faith is put together, or think about even just what they should believe. Uh, about the person of Christ or about the Holy Spirit and so on. So uh, the, the magazine is meant to address that, the, uh, really that gap and to help both lay people and uh, pastors uh, be fed and uh, perhaps even be kept up to date on um, what's happening in, in the theological world.
0: And it's amazing just the the vast array of resources available to pastors who are uh, in the church right now who want to keep uh, an eye on the horizon for uh, theology and for biblical studies. I mean, that's somewhat the goal of exegetical tools, as many of our Mm -hmm. um, listeners on this podcast, many of our readers are wanting to stay up to date and keep sharp on things like uh, their Greek studies or whatever. And it's awesome that Credo can offer that similar kind of a thing. I mean, it's just amazing how many um, opportunities we have to stay sharp and stay uh, in the mix. And so I'm grateful for that. I'm glad that that's available. And I encourage all of our listeners to go check that out. Some rapid fire questions before we close sure. here. And thank you so much for your time. Uh, you spent some time on the left coast. You spent some time across the pond. Uh, now you are here in Kansas city, Missouri yeah. of all places uh, some quick key differences between European and American studies and and how you might recommend one way or the other to a potential student.
1: Yes. I think oftentimes Americans tend to be very uh, infatuated with, uh, doing some type of, uh, degree. It's the accent. It's the accent. Uh, usually, uh, a degree in the UK or, or perhaps, uh, a European degree at large. Uh, and and much of that comes with uh history and and many of the uh prestigious universities that sort of thing but i think i think much of that also comes from uh, maybe inexperience um <laughs> uh, i think there are some actually significant differences uh most know that uh the u k and europe are um in in many ways a wasteland when it comes to uh Evangelicalism, or just even Christianity. Um, I, I remember traveling in Europe not that long ago with my family, and you were hard pressed to find a church, let alone an evangelical church. And likewise, in the UK, uh, the number of evangelicals is uh, it's it's very scary uh, in, in terms of just how how few there are. And um, and then you have just the um, this the suspicion from the culture at large, a very secular culture, uh, aggressively so, that is uh, pressing in. Uh, all that to say, um, I'm as much as uh, some of those universities may be um, prestigious, uh, they can actually be uh, a place of, of really hard spiritual warfare mm. as, as a student, and I don't know that we always realize that. Um, Actually, I think um, if you are, a, a, say, a Ph.D. student and you're considering both, I've, I've learned, I think, over the last couple of years uh, just how much I appreciate uh, some of the, the things that the uh, evangelical seminaries in the States, some of the things that they're doing. Uh, one of them would be, and I didn't realize it, realize it at the time uh, in which I was going through a Ph.D. program, but one of them would be just how robust the system is. Uh, So if you're a Ph.D. student in the States at Evangelical Seminary, chances are you are required to to, to do an entire MDiv before you can even be considered for a Ph.D. Uh, And the MDiv is very extensive in the classes you take, very rigorous. But then once you even get into the Ph.D. program, uh, you're required to take, uh, usually for two or three years, um, a whole set of courses. And then comprehensive exams that come with it. Uh, that's something that you, you don't necessarily find in, uh, say, certain British uh, doctoral programs. Um, and and then, of course, in, in the States, you then, once you finish uh, those uh, key uh, core classes and comprehensive exams, you, then you're beginning your dissertation writing. I think there's a huge advantage to that. Uh, it takes time, yes, and and maybe a little bit longer than it would uh, doing a PhD overseas. Uh, but I think that time is essential because what it's doing is it's preparing you, all those those PhD seminars you're taking and, and colloquiums, as painful as they may be, uh, it's preparing you uh, to write that dissertation rather than just jumping into the dissertation, which you probably are not prepared to do yet. And uh, I, I would mention one other thing. It's also preparing you, uh, just as is to to think more holistically. Uh, one of the dangers with PhD programs is you basically become a, um, an expert in one extremely specific topic uh, that probably most people don't care about. <laughs> um, Amen. But uh, one of the advantages of taking so many different classes is that, uh, in the American system, is that you are being forced to then. Uh, learn the entire Christian faith, um, whether it's uh, in, in Old Testament, New Testament, or systematics in church history. And that's a huge advantage, mm. I think. Uh, I don't know that I would have said that uh, several years ago as I looked at the differences, but I certainly have realized that since and uh, see that, hey, there's there's a robustness to um, doctoral programs in the States that I don't think we, we mm. should overlook.
0: And that brings us full circle, having this body of doctrinal knowledge as we approach, especially in a biblical studies program, some very hyper-specific question in the text. And so I'm I'm glad it took us this whole conversation to get to that point, but I've enjoyed it. Man, this is wonderful. Um, Rapid fire, last, last question off the top of your head. Three reasons why every listener needs to come to Midwestern. Baptist Theological Seminary here in Kansas City um, where I study and where you teach and yeah three
1: reasons three reasons that's it's hard to limit it Three's just gr- to oh, three it yeah. is really hard so i'd I say if i was I will, buying time <laughs> uh, well let me give you a couple of reasons uh, first of all if you come, it, one of the advantages of midwestern i think is that the students I've noticed work really hard. Uh, they work hard. Uh, they're humble. Uh, they, they're approaching the classes with humility, wanting to learn, um, eager to, to 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 read and, and study uh, the books that are assigned, but also then to to understand what's being taught in the classroom. And then they're they're going home and they're spending hours. Uh, Studying up, uh, that that's something that creates a certain atmosphere uh, or environment in which you, as a student, can flourish. So that would be one one reason. There we go. Uh, a second reason would be uh, the seminary believes uh, in exactly what it stands for. So you, I'm sure you've heard. Uh, if you're listening, you've heard uh, the "for the church" motto. Uh, it's not it's not just a marketing scheme. As you might think, actually, uh, the professors here, um, the leaders, uh, le- those in leadership here, Dr. Allen and Dr. Dusing, they actually believe in that motto for the church. And uh, for me, in my discipline, especially in the classes that I, I'm t- I'm, I will be teaching, uh, one of the things you will hear is that uh, – seminary really does exist because uh, theology matters, and it matters for the church. Uh, I, I'm convinced that if, if you leave seminary and become a pastor, and you are not theologically equipped, uh, you're in a very dangerous spot uh, because it's going to be not only difficult for you to teach your people, it's also going to be uh, spiritually very challenging to counsel them and to disciple them According to according to the word of God, so you need to be theologically equipped. And Midwestern believes theology matters, and it matters for the church and, and for its own health. And then a last one. Well, I think I have to I, I have to just throw this in this in there. And of course, this last one is just as serious and just as important <laughs> as, as the other one. Um, here at Midwestern, uh, and in Kansas City. Is the best barbecue. I was hoping you were
0: going to say barbecue. <laughs> I was going to say barbecue now, if you didn't say barbecue.
1: I, I will be honest. I was suspicious before I came. Really is a thing. Uh, I, I had not eaten barbecue. Well, at least I th- I thought I had. I thought I had barbecue. I lived previously uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. Mm. It, you know what? It, it's just not barbecue until you get to Kansas City. Take that, and Southern. You, you can't explain it until you sit down and – you eat at one of the uh, the well-known barbecue uh, restaurants here in town. But there's something about the barbecue here that is different. And I will say this, I am now convinced that if you are studying uh, to be a pastor— Uh, and and you're studying theology and you don't have next to say John Calvin's Institutes a a plate of Kansas City barbecue (laughs) I'm not sure Calvin's Institutes really um, Mm. have the same ring to them so theology and barbecue they go hand in hand I think there's a theological case you can make for that
0: I'll write my dissertation (laughs) about that I appreciate it thank you so much Dr. Barrett absolutely